Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to John 14? We're going to be in John 14 uh, together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, There are people coming down the aisles right now who will get a Bible to you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that home as our gift for you. We'd love for you to be able to have a Bible at home, but you're definitely going to want one of those. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get that to you. Um, I need to kind of just warn you today. Uh, Today is one of those days where I have got a ton to get through. Um, So buckle up your seatbelts and get ready to listen fast because I've got a lot to say this morning. And Elizabeth, limited amount of time to say it. And before uh, we jump in, as you're kind of turning to uh, John 14, want to bring you up to speed on a couple things. First of all, thank you for all of you who were at our Easter services and helping uh, serve at our Easter services. Uh, We, by God's grace, we had 84 people come and get baptized over our four services. And it was really, really powerful and cool. And um, Even more exciting for me than the number is I have been having people contact me and call me and be like, hey, my friend or my neighbor or my family member came to church on Easter and wasn't a believer and they came forward and they got baptized and we're seeing real repentance and real life transformation and a real change of heart. And like, how amazing is it that people today are still finding their why in Jesus And he is ruling and reigning, he's alive, and he's transforming lives. What a humbling thing to be a part of. And the other thing I need to bring you up to speed on is this week, we're starting a brand new series, and it's called How People Change. And we've been in the book of John since January, and we've been loving that series. We're not punting on that series, I promise you. We're just pressing pause on it, and we're going to pick it up again next January. But what we want to do right now is we're going to spend the next 14 weeks getting after the specific question of what is it? mean to be changed by the power of God. All right, we believe strongly at Harvest, we say this a lot, that a faith that hasn't changed you or isn't changing you probably hasn't saved you. We echo what Paul says when he says in 2 Corinthians that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, that Jesus did not die on the cross and rise again so that we could remain slaves to sin and selfishness. We are called to grow in maturity in Christ, that we would become more like him, greater worshipers of him. So we're going to take 14 weeks and get very, very specific and talk about how do people truly have heart change. And our prayer is that this series would be super personal. It would be super practical. We're going to be as helpful and practical. We're going to talk about specific issues that tend to trip us up. But we want this to be a series that is convicting. And we are praying that all of us would be changed by God. Listen, no one here is the finished product, right? If you're the finished product and you've got no areas of growth needed in your life, do me a favor, raise your hand. All right, that's good. You're paying attention. No one raised their hand. I know you're spacing out on me if you raised your hand right there. Um, No one's the finished product. And listen, and if you are content with a watered-down, stale, I'm-just-going-through-the-motion-style Christianity on Sundays. There's a lot of other churches in our area. Go to one of those churches and drive those people crazy. That's not what we are about here. Amen? Good. Um, This week's a little bit different, though, because before we can even talk about change, we first have to have a conversation about truth. 
and what is the nature of truth. And here's why. We need to set a foundation for what reality is, because if we can't agree on what truth or what reality is, talking about change is going to be useless and meaningless. So today, we're going to focus our time on what is the nature of truth and where is it found. And it's here in John 14 where Jesus informs our thinking on this. And uh, just a little context of John 14, Jesus is preparing to die. And he's preparing his disciples. So he's all of a sudden teaching a lot to the disciples. And he's saying things like, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be taken and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to go away from you. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for what is to come. And it's making the disciples nervous. And Jesus can tell that they're getting anxious, that they're starting to get scared. And so he talks to them, trying to encourage them and calm their hearts in John 14. Here's what he said. He says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Man, I love Thomas, right? So Jesus is talking, he's like, I'm gonna go away, but I'm gonna go to my father's house and there's many rooms and I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take you and you know where I'm going. And like all of the disciples are like, okay, okay, okay. And Thomas is the only honest one. And he's like, hey, Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about, right? I love Thomas because he was like me every day in pre-calculus. I don't know what you're saying. None of this makes any sense to me. And look how Jesus responds. I love, he doesn't get angry at Thomas because listen, Jesus is always cool with our honesty. Look at verse six. But Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, church, here's the big idea. It's this. It's that Jesus defines ultimate reality. That Jesus defines what is ultimately real. Jesus says that he is the truth that all truth begins and ends with Jesus, that you cannot have any perception of ultimate reality outside of a knowledge of Jesus, right? And by the way, the Bible talks about this all over the place. Remember last week, Easter, we were in Colossians 1, that it says he was before all things and he created all things and in him all things are held together and that he might be first place in all things, right? Colossians 1 is like he created the world, he sustains the world, he's redeeming the world. And then when he returns, he's going to make all things right and save the world. It's all about Jesus. There's other places this same thing is said. Hebrews 1 says this, it says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews is like, Jesus created all things. He upholds all things. He saved the world and he is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, ruling and reigning right now. That is reality. John 1, 1 through 3, I love this. We looked at this a couple of months ago. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So it's interesting, in this text, John calls Jesus a very specific name. He calls him the Word. All right, so here's a little um, pop quiz for you all this morning. You're my nine o'clock service, so you're really smart. You should get this. What's the Greek word for word? Do you know what word in the Greek John is using there? What's that word? Logos. Wow, a bunch of you got it. That's, that's really, really good. John calls Jesus the Logos. Do you know why he does that? Well, it's really interesting. You see, in Greek philosophy, uh, there was this idea called the Logos, And the Logos was kind of the point of all philosophy and really the point of all life. You see, the Greeks believed that there was this universal transcendent knowledge that was available to all who would seek it. And if you could find this knowledge, it would make sense of the universe. It would make sense of life. It would provide satisfaction and fulfillment. So what the Greeks would do is they would get around and they would think together and they would talk and try to discover this Logos. So do you see what John's doing? He's like, hey, dum-dums, this thing you're searching for, this universal transcendent truth that makes sense of all things that provide satisfaction and life and fulfillment, his name is Jesus Christ. He's come and he is our creator and he's here and he's made himself known. You guys are looking for the wrong things. All right, church, give me your eyes for a second. I wanna be very, very clear and I wanna make sure you understand me. I am saying that all truth and reality begins and ends with Jesus, that if you don't have Jesus, you cannot see the world rightly. And listen, I understand that this is a radical statement. So what I want to do is is I want to take some time and I want to drop four anchors around the nature of truth to help you understand what I am communicating. Here's the first. Let's break this down. A truth is different from facts. Truth is different from facts. Facts are things that you can see. They're observable. They're things that have happened to you or in history. Like here's some facts. I am 36 years old. That is a fact about me. Um, On a good day, I am 5'10". On most other days, I'm 5'9". That's a fact about myself. I was born in Wheaton, Illinois. I grew up in Grand Haven, Michigan. This is a fact about me. I am married. I have four kids. I live in Spring Lake. I have blue eyes. All of these are facts. Truth, what Jesus is talking about when he says truth, it's something deeper. It lives under the surface and it deals with the questions like, why do I exist? What is my purpose? How do I perceive myself? How do I perceive others and this world? Where is there meaning in life? The truth is the deeper things that live under the surface. Jesus is saying, I am the one who provides clarity and answers to those questions. Okay, here's the second anchor you need to understand about the nature of truth is that truth is exclusive. It's not inclusive. Truth by its very nature is exclusive. Look at what Jesus is saying here in verse six. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he says that he is the way, he's saying I'm the one who gives purpose and fulfillment. When he says I am the truth, he says I define reality. And when he says I am the life, he goes I am the one who leads to ultimate flourishing. And then he says the only way you are saved is through faith in me, right? Like listen, when Jesus is saying this, he's not trying to play nice in the sandbox with the other kids, is he? He's not trying to make friends. 
He's not trying to meet people where they're at. He's not trying to build bridges. He is making very exclusive claims about the nature of life and salvation. And by the way, John 14, 6 is a a verse that people have major problems with because of how exclusive Christianity is, right? You've heard this argument. Like, I just hate how Christians think that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's so exclusive. That's so arrogant. And, and, And here's what I want you to understand. All truth claims are exclusive. Like, listen, if I say, this is a blue shirt, all right? And then if Rick Main comes to me at the end of the service and is like, hey, Cal, I love your yellow shirt, I'm going to encourage him to go to the emergency room because something's happening. This is blue, it's not yellow, it's exclusive. So let's play this out when it comes to spiritual things, right? How many of you heard the, the, the phrase, I think just all roads lead to God? Doesn't matter if you're Hindu, doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, doesn't matter if you're Christian. If you're sincere and you're really seeking after God, all roads lead to the same place. It's like that coexist bumper sticker, right? Like, like all of it's the same, let's just figure out how to get along. Listen, that idea, that statement is just as exclusive of a truth claim as it is to say that Jesus is the only way. What does that line of thinking say? It's saying the way I think about religion is the right way and you all should think like me, right? It's an exclusive claim. So when you say all roads lead the same, that's just as exclusive as Christianity because truth by its definition is exclusive. So don't allow people to put you in the you're arrogant because you believe in only one way box. All truth is exclusive. Here's the next one. And this is the big one. A truth is external, not internal. Jesus is saying in John 14 that if we want to perceive ourselves and this world and reality rightly, we need to look outside of ourselves and we need to get our eyes onto Jesus Christ rather than turn inwardly and look to ourselves. And um, church, this is where Christianity collides with our culture so violently, isn't it? And I think there, this is the reason, like, do you ever look at the world around you and it's just like, man, things are getting crazy? Do you ever feel like that or is it just me? Okay. This is also the reason that our culture increasingly looks at us and the church and is like, you guys are bonkers. It's because we disagree on this issue. Here's a stat that's kind of um, terrifying. It's this, it's that 91% of Americans believe that the best way to find ourselves is to look inside of ourselves. So Jesus says that he is the truth, that he is the way. And we live in a culture that says, no, no, no. If you want to find what your truth is, you've got to start by looking inside. We start at a very different beginning point. So let's play out how this works. So this usually happens. We tell young people at the time they're in junior high or high school, you got to find out who you really are. What makes you, you? You need to look inside of yourself. Well, church, can I ask you a question? When you look inside of yourself, what do you find? You find desires, right? You find the things that you want, the things that you like. Desires are what lives inside of us. So so again, what's terrifying is we're telling young people, look inside yourself, you're gonna find your desires. And then you lay that across a society that is hyper overly sexualized. Guess what people are gonna find? They're gonna find their identity in sexuality, whether that's an orientation or whether that's how pretty they are or how much attention they get or how attractive they are. Most of us, it's like our, who we are, our identity is wrapped up in how we look or how we identify sexually, but it's not just sexuality I'm talking about here. You might look inside yourself and you know what I found? I'm a great athlete. 
And that's what gives me purpose. That's what I am. That's my truth. Or you know what? I am really smart and I'm an academic. So I'm going to be at the top of my class. I'm going to get straight A's. I'm going to go to a school. I am a leader. That is what I desire. That is what inside of me, that is my truth. I'm a musician. I'm an artist. We find whatever these desires are in us. And we say that that's our truth. That's who we are. So then guess what we do? Now we've got to look around us and we've got to find people who are like us, right? We've got to find our crew. And um, social media makes it very, very easy for us to silo ourselves with people who look like us and think like us because the weirdos who disagree with us and drive us crazy, guess what we can do? We can block them. We can silence them. So, so more and more and more, we just surround our people with ourselves with people who think like us, who look like us, who are going after the same things. And we believe we found the truth. And then the other thing that we've done as a society is we have weaponized language in a way that is destroying us. This construct that you have a choice, you can either affirm me and agree with my truth, or you hate me and you're a bigot and you're unloving and you're unsafe. Like that construct is insane. The fact that I would put Jonathan in a box that says, you've got to affirm everything about me or you're the problem, you're unloving and you hate me, that there's no possible way to have healthy relationships in this construct. Like some of the most meaningful conversations in my life is when people have loved me enough to be like, Cal, I love you and I disagree with what you're doing. And I'm worried about you and I'm seeing some things off in you and I'm not going just to affirm how you're talking or what you're thinking right now because it's not right. And by the way, I've had those same conversations with people that have led to radical transformation and the nature of real relationships is you deal with friction from time to time. But we have this idol of being affirmed, which is causing us to not even be able to have real relationships. So even though we're around people who are like us, we are actually feeling more and more isolated because everything's about us in here. The fourth thing you need to see about truth, and I'm gonna tie this all together in a second, is that truth is fixed, it's not fluid. Jesus is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and, and that this does not change. Guess what the terrifying thing about desires are? They change all the time, don't they? Like if you know someone who went to college, their first semester, they change their majors three times, don't they? It's like, man, I went into school and I, my desire was I wanna be a doctor. Right, then I saw the coursework, I saw the classes, and I'm like, this is way too much school. I don't wanna be a doctor anymore. Maybe I want to be a teacher. It's right, so now your desires change, so now you're a teacher. Then you have your student teaching semester, and you're like, these kids are animals. I don't wanna be a teacher, I want to be an accountant. Like, what we want, what we think we want, changes all the time. And guess what that means? If your desires change, that means your truth changes, which means there's actually nothing stable in your life because your friend's truth, your crew's truth, it might change. And now they're gonna go find a different crew and they're gonna leave you out in the cold. And by the way, let's take this to an extreme level. Even your spouse, what if his or her truth changes? Man, I thought I wanted to be married, but maybe I just wanna be single and I wanna be free. And maybe that's who I really am. Or I thought I loved you, but maybe I don't love you anymore. And I need to be true to myself and I need to go find who I am. And so I'm going to leave you. Like nothing in your life is stable if truth is found inwardly because our desires change. So church, let's think about what we're doing to our young people as a society right now. 
We're telling them you have to bear the pressure of finding out who you are and discovering your purpose and truth for yourself. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? And then not only that, you're not, you can't have real deep, meaningful relationships. Those are increasingly scarce. It makes us feel more isolated. Nothing in your life is stable or secure because truth changes all the time. And then on top of that, we're gonna throw in Instagram filters, which means when we look at people around us, they all look like they're living their best life all the time and they look better than they actually do and they're having more fun than they actually are. But what it teaches us is, man, my truth must not be that great because everyone else is way more happy than I am. And it's like, man, no wonder everyone's paralyzed with anxiety and freaking out all of the time. Okay, and here's what I love about the Lord. Guess what God says to this? He says, Proverbs 18, 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe, right? One of the things I love most about God is that he is stable and he's unchanging. God's love for you will never fail. It will never lessen. It will never change. God's patience for you never runs out. God's standard for morality and righteousness, it stays the same. Like we can know what is right and what is wrong because we are given stability in the Lord. God's kindness for you never changes. Here's what I love, right? Think about it. This past Easter, right? Bunch of people come forward, give their life to Christ. You know, that's been the same method and plan of salvation for thousands of years, that people are finding their hope in Jesus Christ as the answer for salvation. And it is the plan of God and it has not moved. It has not changed. His mercies will continue to be good every morning. His goodness and faithfulness will not run out. His promises are true. These are things we can build our life on because they are fixed and they provide stability. Again, 91% of Americans believe the best way to find ourselves is to look inside of ourselves. Jesus compels us to be part of that 9% that says, no, this isn't true and it's not going to end well. And church, I need you to hear my heart. This is really important because I'm seeing this happen. I think as how we think about the nature of truth in life as it moves away from the culture that we're living in, here's what I'm worried. I'm worried that that's going to produce in us anger and frustration. Because if we become angry and frustrated with our culture, we are the problem. Like what has to be produced in us is a compassion for our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends who don't know the Lord. Listen, one of the things I love about the gospel is it outs all of us. None of us are saved because we are awesome and we are righteous. So if our salvation is producing this mentality of man, I know better and I think better and I'm saved because I know what all these people don't know, that's the wrong attitude. It's got to be this idea that I'm not better than you, but I do want better for you because I love you. And listen, we are increasingly living in a society by every metric that is wiped out, that is exhausted, that is searching for answers. And if our attitude is, man, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it and they are safe, man, that is a message that resonates with exhausted hearts, isn't it? All right, so here's the next thing we need to talk about that I wanna spend the rest of our time. That's kind of the nature of truth. Now we need to talk about how God has revealed this truth to us. And here's the next point in your notes, if you're taking notes, it's that God has revealed the truth of Jesus through the scriptures, through the Bible. And here's what I'm going to do for the next 15 minutes or so. I'm going to make an argument that what you have on your lap in front of you, whether it's in your phone or whether it's an actual Bible, that thing that you have is a stinking miracle. 
It is miraculous how God has protected the scriptures. The Bible is 40 authors. Think about this. 40 authors writing over 1,500 years on three different continents. They wrote a story that perfectly fits together. This book was written from kings to slaves, from prophets to fishermen, written in palaces and written in prisons. One book written by men under the inspiration of God's spirit. Here's what that means. It means that men wrote the Bible, but as they were writing, they knew they were writing the very words of God. This thing is spirit inspired. And it's one story with hundreds of prophecies that all find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the star, he is the hero, it's all about him. This is how God has revealed to us the truth of salvation that we might live for God, know God and receive salvation in Christ. So here's what I wanted to show you about scripture. Here's the first thing, scripture has been miraculously preserved. Scripture has been miraculously preserved. So let's start by just talking about the New Testament. We'll get to the Old Testament in a second. Uh, Check out this chart on the next slide. Okay, here is the New Testament in comparison to other famous works of ancient literature. Um, Let's start with talking about Plato's Republic. Uh, Here's a question. How many of you guys took intro to philosophy and you had to read Plato's Republic, right? It's pretty brutal, isn't it? Like it's not not an easy book, that one. And uh, I'll tell you this story quickly. So my freshman year, I went to Calvin College and here's the way that scheduling classes in college work. Um, The older students, the, the seniors and juniors, they get to get all the good classes, They get to schedule first. They know all the best teachers. They know which classes to avoid. They schedule first. And like the freshmen are left with the scraps. We're just left with what's available. So my first semester freshman year, I got put in a four hour Wednesday night intro to philosophy class. All right, just brutal. And and my philosophy prof, I actually really liked him. He was so stereotypical philosophy prof. He had like the owl glasses that are super circular. He had like perfectly graying hair and a beard. And uh, he just all class, he would have a styrofoam coffee cup that he would not hold like a normal person. He would hold like this. And he would just slowly swirl it as he was talking. And he'd be just talking about philosophy. Four hours, he'd never take a sip, right? So I'm like, how am I supposed to focus on what you're talking about when the only thing I can think about is how cold is that coffee and why won't you drink it? Like, let me get you some good coffee and you can enjoy it. So this is my philosophy class. The first book we start with is Plato's Republic. And uh, because it's like the foundation for philosophy. How do you understand Greek thought? How do you understand the nature of philosophy? You start here. So we study this thing for months. Guess what we never once had a conversation about? Did Plato actually write it? It's assumed as historical fact that this book is written by Plato. Here's what's crazy about that. The book was written in around 400 BC. The first copy we have didn't come into being until 1300 years after it was originally written. So think about that. That's like six Americas went by before the first copy of Plato's Republic came into being that we have of it. And there's only seven copies that we have of this, but we assume, yeah, Plato for sure wrote that book. Okay, maybe you're like, all right, I'm not a philosophy guy. I'm more of a literature guy. Well, let's talk about Homer's Iliad. It was written in 900 BC. The earliest copy is 500 years, again, two Americas after Uh, Homer was alive and is said to have written it. And the number of copies we have is 643. So like to me, that's way more believable than Plato's Republic. It's got way better evidence, but still 500 years is a long time. 
Um, the New Testament, let's compare it. It was written between 40 and 95 AD. The earliest copies we have are within 30 years of the original writing, and we have 24,000 copies. Like, here's what I'm saying. The assurance and proof that what we have in the New Testament, that the gospels are what the gospels actually were written down to be, blows away anything else in human history. Wanna hear something crazy that's really cool? If you were just to quote the new early church fathers, if you didn't have the New Testament and all you did was take the early church fathers quoting the New Testament in their writings, we would have the entire New Testament written except for 11 verses. Like we can know that we know that we know that the stories of Jesus and the plan of salvation and the letters written by Paul and John and Peter, they were what were actually written. It blows anything else in human history out of the water. Okay, here's the next thing I also want you to see. The scriptures are miraculously accurate. So let's talk about the Old Testament now. In the 1940s, there was a uh, Bedouin shepherd boy and he was bored, so he started throwing rocks into caves. And uh, all of a sudden he heard a crash and uh, he on accident made one of the greatest archeological discoveries in the history of the world. He found what is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here's why this is so important is because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was a um, exiled a priestly community that was kind of banished from Jerusalem. So they copied the scriptures and they hid them all away. But the interesting thing is, is these copies dated back a thousand years earlier than anything else we had from the Old Testament. So what Bible scholars did is, is there was almost a perfect uh, transcribed scroll of Isaiah. So what they did is they took that scroll and they compared it to what we have in the book of Isaiah. You know what they found? They found that they were 99.5% identical. All right, and so I know some of you are thinking, well, what about that 0.5% Cal, right? You're a weirdo, but I'll, I'll hang with you. I get it. Um, that 0.5%, those were errors of translation. It's a misspelled word. It's a comma instead of a period. It's a misplaced sentence structure. But here's the thing, we have so many copies that if you cross-reference them, you can easily spot them. So again, here's what we know to be true. What we have in front of us dating back over 2,000 years, 3,000 years in cases is the exact things that Jesus studied and worshiped. It is a miracle. Third thing I want you to understand is that scriptures have miraculously stood the test of time. So a few weeks ago, I was able to go to Israel with a group of our church for about 10 days. And here's the thing that like, I can't explain to you unless you go to Israel. When you're in Israel, you realize how young America actually is. And it's like you go to Israel and you're walking on streets that Jesus actually walked on, like thousands of years old. And I was talking with one of our tour guides. His name was Ellie, super sweet man. And he was making fun of how Americans think. And he goes, you know, I uh, was in America about five or 10 years ago. And he said, I went to the great nation of Texas. And uh, we're like, yeah, that's not wrong, really. Um, and he goes, I went and I visited the Alamo. And so you go tour this Alamo and he goes, everything's roped off. You can't touch anything. And uh, I, he goes, I went to the guy that was leading the tour. I'm like, why is this ro roped off? And they're like, well, we don't want you to touch anything because everything here is really, really old. And Ellie was like, really? Like, what time is this from? And they're like, it's from the 1840s. <laughs> and Ellie was like, oh, cool. Like, 
We have towns that were from 1000 BC in Israel. Like America is such a baby in terms of history and human, human civilization in the world. And so here's why I tell you this. Um, all of Israel is an archeological site. Like there's been so many people that have lived there for so long. Like you can just start digging anywhere and you're gonna find artifacts. And what happens is, is when you drive through Israel, you'll see all of these like mounds that are like a hundred feet in the air and they're just all by themselves. And we're like, what is that? It's just like covered in grass. And the guy's like, that's what's called a tell. And here's what that means. That was an old ancient civilization. And what happens is there was a civilization. It got defeated. It got destroyed. The next civilization built on top of it. That got destroyed. They built on top of it. They built on top of it. So it ends up becoming a high ground because everyone's just building on top of each other. And um, we went to a new spot this time in Israel. We went to a place called Hazor. And it's from the Bible. It's in Joshua 11. And here's the story of Hazor. And this is really cool. It said, and Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword for Hazor was formerly the head of all of those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword, all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. And there was none left that breathed. And listen to this, he burned Hazor with fire. All right, so you go to this site called Hazor and it's one of these tells where there's just layers and layers of different civilizations, but they can tell what time period each was from by where it is and what layer it is. So they showed us, hey, look, this layer is from the time of the Bible when Joshua captured Hazor. Guess what is around that entire level or layer in Hazor? There's ash. There's a dark line of ash. And the archaeologists like, you know why? Because Hazor was burned to the ground. It's just like another recent discovery that proves that the Bible is true. Like there have been hundreds of years of archeology span in Israel. None of it has disproven the Bible. In fact, the Bible is like the proof text for archeology span because it has found itself to be so accurate. This book is a miracle. But here's the last thing I want to say about the Bible. And then this is gonna wrap up our time together this morning. Uh, the Bible is not a guidebook. The Bible is not a guidebook. Uh, so last Sunday, after our Easter services, um, right, it's a long weekend if you work in ministry. Easter's like the big weekend. And so we had Friday night services. I preached Saturday here, and then I preached Saturday, Sunday here in Grand Haven. I was traveling around between campuses. Right after church, I went for Easter lunch at the in-laws' house, and we hid Easter eggs for all the nieces and nephews and played with them out in the yard because it was beautiful outside. Then we had lunch, and it was like 4.30 in the afternoon, and we finally went back home. And I'm like, Mary, I am exhausted. And I'm like, the only thing that I want to do is I want to lay on the couch, I want to turn on the Masters Golf Tournament, and I want to fall asleep to the sound of golf, because that's what golf is good for, to fall asleep to on Sundays. And uh, I was so excited about doing this. And so I'm on the couch, the Masters is on, I I'm literally, my eyes are closed, I'm starting to drift in and out of sleep, and all of a sudden I hear my son, Bo, hey, Dad. I'm like, what's up, Bo? He goes, do you want to know what I've been thinking about? And like in my mind, I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do right now. I want to invest the thought, I want to investigate the thoughts of a nine-year-old boy. And uh, I was like, what are you thinking about, Bo? And he goes, I think being a caddy for a golfer would just be brutal. And I was like, really, why? He's like, think about it. They've got to carry the clubs and walk around with them. 
They've got to help the golfer. They've got to help talk about the shots. They've got to be the coach. They've got to do all of this stuff. And then when the golfer wins, he gets all of the credit. He gets all of the glory. He gets the jacket. He goes, I think being a, a golf caddy would be the worst. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't have the energy to explain pay structures in professional athletes. But I'm like, Bo, I can assure you these guys are doing exactly what they want to do. Okay, but here's why I, I tell that story. Because I have this growing fear that so many of us in here today, we view the Bible, or maybe even we view Christianity and Jesus Christ like he's our caddy. Like he exists to make our life smoother and better, and he exists to help us. Right? And it's like we approach scripture, this miracle that's been preserved, that gives us the way of life. And we're like, yeah, I, I can't really get into it. I, I can't make time for it in my schedule. Or when I read it, I struggle to get anything out of it. Or yeah, like I know a couple verses that make me feel a little bit better when I'm stressed out. But other than that, like it's not really my thing. Listen, that's an attitude that believes that Jesus exists to make our thing better. Right, contrast that with, man, this is how God has revealed Jesus to us. This is ultimate reality. And in this book, we're going to find our way, our truth and our life. There is no hope outside of Jesus. There is no way outside of him. So I'm all in on this book because Jesus is the star of this book. He's the star of my life and the star of all reality. Church, I want to love you enough to tell you this right now. Do you know that Jesus and Christianity and the Bible is a bigger deal than you are? That this thing that we are a part of is way bigger than us? Jesus is the Almighty One. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the bread of life. He is our chief cornerstone. He is our deliverer. He is faithful. He is the one true king. He is the good shepherd. He is the great high priest. He is the holy one. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, the great I am, the alpha, the omega, the king of kings, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the light of the world, the lover of my soul, the lion of Judah. He is our mediator, the mighty one, our Messiah. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is the great prophet. He is the redeemer, our rock, the risen Lord. He is the door. He is the way. He is the word. He is the vine. He is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And look at me. He is the truth. And all reality hinges on him. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And what he does is he invites us into what is ultimately real through faith in Jesus. How good is God that he would even make that way for us? Jesus does not exist for us. We exist to worship his name and to bring him glory. You have to get that right. All right, so here's what we're gonna go after together in this series. Here's the point of it all. We want to align the facts of our lives with the ultimate reality of Jesus. So this is what change looks like. We look at the facts of our lives and we're saying, all right, listen, if Jesus is the truth, if he defines ultimate reality, then guess what we are called to do? We're called to align our lives to his truth. And Jesus tells us how to work and how to live and how to engage with our spouse and how to be a friend and what to set our minds on and how to worship. So it's our job to say, hey, are we aligning the facts of our lives with the reality that Jesus is ruling and reigning in all things? Okay, so here's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that right now, through the spirit of God, repentance starts to happen in all of us. 
right? All of us have areas in our life that we need to yield to the Lord. All of us have areas where we're neglecting to trust God, where we're neglecting to follow God, where we're neglecting to believe his promises. And by the way, his promises aren't the problem. His word isn't the problem. His truth isn't the problem. It's our hearts that are the problem. So as we begin to enter this series on how people change, maybe we need to start by just praying and saying, hey God, would you soften my heart? God, I want to change. I want to follow you. I believe that life and flourishing and purpose and fulfillment is found in Christ. May we be a church that have hearts that are soft to the Spirit's conviction. And if we are going to do that, I think God's gonna do an amazing thing in this series. I'm so excited for it. You with me? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for this church. God, what a privilege it is to be in a room full of people who lean forward towards your word, who are engaged in worship and engaged in the reality that you are alive and ruling and reigning. God, help us to be humble. Help us not to be arrogant. God, would you please protect us from ourselves? Would we not enter this series with the mentality of how do others in my life need to change? But God, would we really personalize this? Would this not be a vague idea? Would this be personal and transformational in our hearts? We love you and we need you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.